Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Premature Millionaire Show. I'm your host, Dahi Dooley. And today's episode features Vanguard's legendary founder, Jack Bogle. In the finance world, no one has been more impactful to the modern investment theories than Jack. He was an early pioneer for passive investing. Yesterday, we talked about how diversification gives you protection against ignorance. Well, Jack built Vanguard so the average investor can eliminate risk. He's the reason why there's so many 401k millionaires today. He created a way for the average investor to buy the market cheaply. Jack Bogle recently passed away, but his message will stand the test of time. If you want to passively invest, just buy the market. So without any further holdups, here's Jack. Very happy to be here with Jack Bogle in the headquarters of Bogle Research Center right here in your office in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. And uh, Jack, it's so great to be able to sit down and spend another. Last time we ran on about an hour and 15 minutes, I think. <laughs> so I probably won't try to keep you that long, but it's, it's great to see you again and have a chance to talk to you about what's going on with Vanguard and your work. Well, there's a lot going on. It's a, it's, a, it's a real delight to see you again and to salute you on the work you're doing for the investors out there. Uh, we were saying at lunch, and uh, we'll start out with the uh, give you an opportunity to try and manage, manage an ego, which is difficult for all of us as human beings. Well, only, only, but, not, not for me, but for everybody else. <laughs> well, I don't think that there is anyone in finance that has either had as big of an impact or as um, beneficial an impact on the world in history than the work that you've done and the work that Vanguard's done. I mean, if you, if you want numbers, you know the numbers better than anyone, but $3.5 trillion under management, uh, the lowest fees really by far in the category, a completely transparent uh, set of tools and solutions that really teach somebody the principles of how to make money and, and how to think intelligently about investment. Uh, who else has delivered that to that scale uh, in finance in history? Well, I mean, I guess I'd say not very many people, but for a very definite reason. And that is most people in this business are trying to make money for themselves rather than for their shareholders. And so they're not focused on giving the shareholder the best break. And if you think about it at all deeply, you realize that the stock market creates nothing. It reflects the returns earned by investors, by Investment America, the corporations of the country, the public corporations. And they have earnings. They pay out dividends. They reinvest the earnings in the business. That's where the value is created. You access that value. You access that value through investing. So then the question is, they've created, corporate America has created this kind of value. What comes down to investment America? And the answer is exactly what they earn, except that it's then the question is, how is it allocated between Wall Street, essentially the financial system, and Main Street, the people who invest? And the allocation to Wall Street is the objective of this business because everybody is in Wall Street. And uh, what we should be doing is working, and what we have been doing here at Vanguard, is putting the investor first and innovating for the investor and not for ourselves and uh, trying to keep costs as low as we can, which is rock bottom. That's been the idea from the very beginning of Vanguard uh, because a mutual company doesn't have a private owner out there and, or a public owner. And so we have no one to serve but the shareholder. Can you think of an analogy in the business world or anywhere in life for the index fund and for the way that Vanguard approaches business? For somebody who's watching this and is very new to finance, um, is there a food business or is there a leader or is there a concept inside or outside of business that you think is a nice analogy for Vanguard and the index fund? I don't think there really is. And uh, the reason is that capitalism is about creating capital for the capitalist, if that's not too many capitals in one sentence, and uh, not creating. They know they have to provide value. Uh, Adam Smith, 1776. The sole role of the producer is to serve the consumer. 
And in this business, it's dollars and cents. The more one gets, the less the other gets. In, yeah, and, and in, in an innovative company, you can create more and more value. You can reduce prices, but you're always making money yourself. That's what capitalism is, the incentive to get rich, if you will. And, uh, you know, I'm doing fine, but I don't own Vanguard. I've never owned a share of Vanguard. And, but I've been paid a nice salary, and well, a decent salary, and a nice bonus when I was running the place. So uh, I'm not complaining, but I just don't have and never will have the kind of wealth that most people in this business have gotten because they've charged their investors too much for what they're worth. Hmm. Can you really uh, lay, make it very clear what the mutual structure is for Vanguard? Just for somebody who doesn't, doesn't understand it, is this a not-for-profit? Is, how, how, is it a collective? How is it set up? Yeah, well, first let me contrast it with the, the typical mutual fund system. Uh, and the typical mutual fund system is an entrepreneur of some kind, back at the beginning, uh, creates, has a company, creates a company that forms mutual funds. And that company runs the mutual funds and gets paid for it. And that's the way any company starts. Nothing the matter with that. That is conventional. The difference in the mutual fund industry is when that little baby that needs all that parental care grows up, he doesn't need the care anymore. But some of these funds are 100 years old, <laughs> almost 100 years old, and they still have that parent watching over them and taking money away. That's too long. You know, the child matures, the child grows up, the child goes off on its own, and Vanguard's contribution is essentially recognizing that and saying, okay, you own the company. The incentives are all gone. You can do that pretty easily. And again, who is you that owns the company? Uh, you is the shareholders of our mutual funds. Mm -hmm. You buy a mutual fund, and you are a, essentially a shareholder, an owner of Vanguard. Yeah, but, but just to give you each step, uh, here's your fund. It's run by Vanguard, and you own Vanguard. And Vanguard also runs a whole bunch of other funds, and we allocate the cost among those funds. There are now probably 165 of them. So the costs are allocated depending on the fund's own cost, depending on competition, depending on fairness, things like that. So some judgment involved. But we still run this place for, you know, give or take uh, 12 basis points, 12 hundredths of 1 percent. And the average mutual fund specifically uh, runs straight average, not weighted, about 112. Mm -hmm. So we save you 1 percent a year. 90 percent. Yeah. 90 percent plus lower. Right. And what does that amount to over long periods of time? Because I think the average... What person who's maybe sitting down with their accountant sees, well, it's 1.12% it's or it's 0.12%. That's nothing. That's not going to be a game changer for me in my investment career. I might as well pick this this one that I believe in most, even if it's one percentage point higher in fees. But what's the consequence of that if those two funds perform the same over 25 or 50 years? Well, the consequence of that is that the one with the that's indexed, a dollar will produce about $30 at 7%. And uh, the one that's not indexed and you're paying 2%, the dollar we created about $10 uh, at 5%. That's the 7 minus the 2. So that means that you've put up 100% of the capital, you've taken 100% of the risk, and you've gotten 33% of the return. And, Tom, if that sounds good to you, <laughs> I've got a bridge <laughs> I want to sell you. have got some real estate. <laughs> to, and that, that can not, it's not a big extrapolation to say that that can cost an individual who's regularly saving hundreds of thousands of dollars over their lifetime. Yeah, they, they, they would probably uh, pick a number I used, I think, in the Financial Analyst Journal, just taking this through to its conclusion, uh, that a typical retiring investor putting in a certain amount a month and growing with salary and all would have maybe $450,000 at the 5% level on, in his retirement plan and maybe 650000 in the indexed plan. Mm -hmm. That's just the math. It is inarguable. Mm -hmm. There's no way around it. I call it, after Justice Brandeis, the relentless rules of humble arithmetic. <laughs> you cannot avoid the math. <laughs> you can't even avoid though, the math. Even though the industry has attempted to at times. But what I'd like to um, um, do is to hear you, if you could, give the simplest Vanguard-like, index fund-like, financial game plan for somebody who's over 50. Now, of course, each of us has all these individual factors of what decisions we've made, but the average person over 50, how simple? What is the simplest 10-minute solution or half-hour solution to getting Vanguard returns? 
Well, I'll give you a simple solution. But the one thing we know about the average is uh, unlike Wobegon, like Wobegon, you know, there are a whole lot of people that are here and here and here, and the average is here. So in essence, nobody's average. Uh, you're all a little bit above average or a little bit less than average. You may have greater risk tolerance. You may have greater income requirements. Uh, you may have greater financial ambitions and are willing to take risks to accomplish them. But in all those cases, the lower the price you pay for owning the stock market and the bond market, the better off you are. Now, I have talked about a rule of thumb, and I want to underscore it's a rule of thumb, a place to begin thinking about having your bond position equal your age. So when you're 20, you'd be 80% bonds. Now, that's a rule I would not 80 dream stocks. of 80% stocks. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't dream of telling somebody to put their first investment to be 80% in stocks. They should be 100% in stocks. Mm -hmm. You know, in the first year, maybe they'll put away $1,000. That's a drop in the bucket mm -hmm. compared to the value of their career mm -hmm. and the value of what the investments will ultimately be. And by the same token, uh, I, at least at these interest rate levels, I'll come in on that in a second, uh, I wouldn't dream of telling everybody who was 87 <laughs> why you say you're that laughing. with pride. You say that with pride <laughs> and enthusiasm. Uh, to be 87% in mm -hmm. bonds. I am not. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm approximately 50-50. Mm -hmm. And uh, so a lot depends on your own requirements. Mm -hmm. And this rule of thumb, first of all, very important for people to think about, and that is just about everybody that you're going to be talking about, every investor you're talking about, also has Social Security. And that has a capitalized value. What is that, the size of that asset pool you would need to create the returns you get in your monthly Social Security check? Probably $350,000. So if you have $700,000 and $350,000 of Social Security, and you put 100% of your stocks into that, so it's three fifty in stocks, uh, 350 in this bond-like investment, and you're 50-50. Mm -hmm. So take that into account. If you have a pension from a local government or from a corporation that's not going to go bankrupt, I quickly add, you should add that in. Uh, what you're trying to do when you retire, which I am going to do someday. Mm -hmm. I think you're going to fail at that. I think you're going <laughs> to fail at that, Would Jack. not be my first failure. <laughs> uh, but uh, when, when you want to do that, uh, you want to ensure a monthly flow of income. So don't watch the market. Just make sure your portfolio is producing income and will continue to produce income. So you get your Social Security check every month. You set up your mutual fund account or your index fund account for a monthly payment. You can do that. And just you want those payments to be stable and with respect to Social Security and the, and the fund alike will grow a little bit over time. Yeah. Dividends are an extremely important part of this. And you know, ever since the 30s, which were a terrible time, early 30s, in the Great Depression, when dividends probably got cut 75%. Uh, there's only been one period of time. Not that long ago. Well, we're almost with, with, seven where years Where dividends out. were cut by, I think, about 25%. Mm -hmm. And that was from 2008 to 2009, mm -hmm. when in the financial crisis, the banks had to eliminate their dividends. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's a line like this, with this one bump in it. So I think you can count on that under any foreseeable circumstances, to which I quickly add, there are a lot of unforeseeable circumstances out there. But there is a lot of cash on the balance sheets of corporate America to suggest that the dividend is pretty secure. Yeah, exactly. For, for payouts are low. Yeah. They're probably running, the long-term payout is probably uh, 55, 65% of earnings, and now they're paying maybe 35 to 45% mm -hmm. of earnings. Mm -hmm. I want to go back to something you mentioned a minute or two ago about the importance of fees and really looking at um, what you're paying for that return that's being created by corporate America or corporations around the world, and then the fee that is the one interruption for you to actually getting that return. Would you suggest then that somebody who's going through and evaluating a mutual fund to purchase, and there are sites and services like Morningstar and others that have all of the ratings and reviews, and they tell you about the manager and all the rest, would you say that the best thing that someone could do would be to remove all of those factors and just rank them by fee? and buy the ones that have the lowest fee. If you could do that without looking at anything else, obviously you'd end up with a number of Vanguard funds because your fees are average 0.12%. But is that, a good, is that a better methodology than the average person is using to pick a mutual fund? Well, I'm tempted to say and will say, ask Morningstar. They say that their sophisticated rating system works almost as well as simply rating the funds by cost. Wow. 
So they have entered the confessional booth. <laughs> with characters. This has been happening for you over one decade after another. Which next financial provider is going to enter the confessional booth? Well, the problem with that is this industry is run for the managers. They're the ones that put up the capital to start the management company. There's the ones that sell out to financial conglomerates. And today, you know, we have among the 50 largest mutual fund groups, we have one mutual fund company. That would be Vanguard. We started the company 42 years ago, and Vanguard meant leader in a new trend. And we have failed as a leader. 42 years of success, and we have yet to find our first follower. Think about that. So they're going to have to eventually, you know, is money is- Is that true? I mean, isn't, we were talking before about BlackRock. Isn't every fund company out there putting an index fund out there? Don't you have everyone following you? Well, BlackRock has been able to do it. No, uh, specifically. Mm -hmm. The ETF, exchange-traded fund business, is basically BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street, mm -hmm. and then it totally dwindles off. Mm -hmm. The traditional index fund business, the kind I started back in, in 1975, uh, underwriting in 1976, uh, is um, Vanguard has 80% of that market. Fidelity, struggling along, has 10 and three or four other firms do the remaining 10%. Mm -hmm. So, and, and it, it, I mean, people hide it. For example, T. Rowe Price has some index funds. Mm -hmm. They're very good, but they charge a quarter of 1% a year plus mm -hmm. a quarter of 1% mm -hmm. compared to five one-hundredths of 1%. Mm -hmm. uh, you could say they're overcharging the investor by 20 basis points, mm -hmm. and I would say that's a way of looking at it. But what it really says is, if you just, if it's all the same to you, Give us your active management business and don't buy our index funds because they make more money at that. This is capitalism at work, as I've said before. Isn't there a company that maybe is analogous, not perfectly to the zero sum that you that you uh, outlined for finance, in a company like Costco? When I think of Costco, I think that that's the closest thing that I associate with Vanguard in business. Sure. Well, we, we use uh, Costco. My wife does. You pay the flat annual subscription and then everything else is marked down to... Uh, but they still are a public company mm -hmm. that wants to make money. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing the matter with that. I just try to get this through people's heads. There's nothing the matter with doing that. The problem is in the financial business, value and cost are reverse sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. When you go into Costco or anything else you can think of, um, there's a value in your mind. You buy a Mercedes-Benz, you got a lot of value out of driving now, I don't know why anybody would get any great pleasure out of that, but maybe it's pride. Uh, maybe they think Mercedes-Benz is a, a new star somewhere in the sky. I don't know. But uh, you can't directly associate the cost with the value. Mm -hmm. But in the mutual fund business, it's how the returns are divided up between the marketplace and the investor. So this is a hard business to do it in without giving up your profits. Costco is not going to give up theirs. Um, mm -hmm. That's the power nor, of the nor is, nor is Target, mm -hmm. which is my family name for Target. <laughs> <laughs> um, a couple principal, principles of investing questions. Um, Warren Buffett at some point has said, it turns out to be true of Motley Fool data as well. Warren Buffett has said that if he had never sold a stock since he was 11 years old, he would be a lot wealthier and Berkshire Hathaway shareholders would be a lot better off. We looked at all of our investment results of the Motley Fool. If we had never recommended a sale, the overall net returns would be better, particularly if you factor in cap capital gains taxes and the time and energy and emotion of trying to figure out when to sell something and buy something else. Does that align with how you think at Vanguard? Do you think the best thing that somebody could do if they came in at 25 years old, their first Vanguard account and their 401k or in an IRA, if they just bought and said, well, you know, I saw this interview and Jack said I should just never sell that no matter what happens out there in the world, just keep adding money and never sell is a good principle. Uh, sure, that's right. Uh, now, you want to be sure you're on a broad-based index fund, and I would say traditional index fund. Uh, you can buy a Vanguard ETF, exchange-traded fund, for the S&P 500. It's part of the same identical portfolio, uh, the 500 portfolio we have here, which is largely owned by traditional index fund holders, and to a smaller extent, maybe 20% owned by exchange-traded fund. Same product, more or less the same price. And if you hang on to it, it doesn't matter which you do. So you hang on, and I'll give you one little example. 
the lawyer for the underwriters in our initial underwriting in 1976, one of the greatest flops in the history of Wall Street. The underwriting or the lawyer? The, well, the lawyer. <laughs> no, the, the underwriting, excuse me. Good question. And uh, we, we had a 40th anniversary lunch the other day, and uh, not too many of them left. They don't seem to be quite as hardy as, as you know who. <laughs> and uh, he said that he bought 1,000 shares. He wanted this, this tragic underwriting, tiny. Uh, it was like an $11 million, $11 million take, and what were the expectations? When well, he did the, what he said was, you know, we were sure we could do $250 million, mm -hmm. and then we got a pretty good chance at $200 million. It looks like $150 million is in the bag, and if we reach just a little bit more strongly, we'll get to $100 million. And $50 million ought to be duck soup, and I know we can get $25 million, and the check comes in, and it's 11.3. And... So he felt badly about it, did that. He'd made a nice fee, I guess, from it. And uh, so he bought 1,000 shares at $15, put in 15,000. And he brought his statement to the meeting. That's great. He's held it ever since. And uh, he has paid any taxes out of his own pocket, income taxes. And at the outset, we had a few more capital gains taxes, but not very many. And I don't think we've paid a capital gain distribution because we don't sell anything for probably 10 years, 20 years now, something like that. And... I'll ask you, $15,000 in 1976, what okay. does he have today? Okay, um, I'm going to say that he has $15,000. Um, I know you're supposed to be asking the questions. I'll say he has 106000 Wow, what a great guess. I'm, I'm way off. Darn it. No, not, of course I'm way off. I'm not even close. No, $903,000. Nine hundred and three thousand yeah. We're gonna edit that out. <laughs> edit your part out. Keep I'm gonna my part say nine hundred <laughs> give or take three. <laughs> yeah, that's that's it's pretty that's the best guess I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember reading about Shelby Davis. I don't know whether you knew Shelby Davis Senior or He's a big big giver to Princeton University. Okay, yes, okay, you're all a model. Insurance stocks. And yes, he and he he had started with fifty thousand and he came up with a principle I should never sell because the worst thing you can do is lose a huge winner. Yep. Saving yourself from losses is minus a hundred at worst, and that's rare. Um, but if you miss the, the, the huge, great long-term winners, and he turned $50,000, and he was, did 24% a year. Of course, he used margin, but he died with $900 million from that four, 45 years later. So, Well, I feel really sorry for him. You know, <laughs> think about it. It could have been a billion. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Got so close. Um, what, what about uh, risk? How do you assess risk? If, if we're now saying, oh, put your money in, let it ride, add to it over time, start with 15000 you find yourself 40 years later, you're going to have $900,000 um, or something approximating that, depending on how the overall market does in the next 40 years. But what about larger risks? What risk could reasonably threaten that in the next 40 years? Or are you telling your grandchildren in their 20s now, just go with this game plan? Well, I do for my grandchildren. They can change it when they get They don't really know how much money I've put away for them over all these years. And I always put it in balanced index fund. 60% S&P 500, or total stock market, I should say, and 60% total bond 60, market. 60% uh, so You said last time we talked that anyone watching could put all of their money into that one fund and make it their sole investment sure. throughout life. Now, it's conservative, and it protects you against your emotions, mm -hmm. because when the market goes way down, stock market goes way down, the bond market actually usually goes up a little bit under that circumstance. So the, the, we have, investors have behavioral problems, and they panic. If their if their account goes down fifty percent, an account like this probably goes down thirty two or three percent. Okay. So you don't get exposed to the worst of it. Mm -hmm. There's no question that a hundred percent stock portfolio will do better in the long run. Mm -hmm. I mean that's just the numbers. As stocks will return over the long run, not every twenty five year period, but probably three out of four, um, stocks will return more than bonds. They will be the highest returning investment because they have a higher risk. Now what is risk? Let me tell you what it is not. It is not volatility. We use volatility to measure risk. You know, if the market goes up, well, let me say, um, or down 25%, uh, and you own the market, that's what you do. If you want to reduce the volatility in a balanced fund, you know, you maybe go up or down 15%. Uh, and if you want to get an extremely aggressive fund, maybe up and down 40%. Uh, but it's symmetrical and fairly symmetrical. And um, 
So that's a way of measuring, but it's a short-term thing. In the long term, the risk is that you may lose one hell of a lot of money. If you started buying stocks in 1919 or 1920 or 1918, uh, you were doing fine through 1929, and then you lost 90% of your money in an all-stock portfolio. And it took you another 15 years to get back to even or something. Yeah, actually a little more. Than, uh, just mm. about right, just about right. 15 mm. years in mid-40s. And uh, so those kind of risks are big risks. And uh, they're risks that we can't measure. Um, there are risks that come from things like what is the probability that our society will collapse? What is the probability that with all the undercurrents that are going on in American society between the haves and have-nots, nots, and the haves, the um, superior, larger races and the minorities. Uh, those, those gaps are very wide, and uh, I'm, I'm deeply concerned that we may get in some real trouble, and that's why I describe myself as um, so conservative that I'm liberal. I want to protect our society, and therefore I want to protect those segments of society that haven't been treated fairly mm -hmm. to the best of our ability. And then there are the known risks, like nuclear war, uh, worldwide disease, plague kind of thing, uh, religious uprisings, um, the things that we know about and worry about today. And then as my fellow Princetonian Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld says, those are the known unknowns. And what about the unknown unknowns? And of course, since they're unknown, we can't comment on that, hmm. about that. But none of those unknown unknowns or none of those big risks cause you to change your investment approach, I guess, because the assumption is if the market goes down 90% on the Bogle family portfolios, that there are so many other problems in the world, it's probably not going to be a make or break thing for you that your stock portfolio is down. Well, no, as, as a wise man once said, if there's nuclear war, it won't matter a hell of a lot whether you own stocks or bonds. <laughs> it's gone. Society is gone. It's, it's frightening to think about. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that given the enormity of these kind of risks that I've described and the unknown risks that we really don't know, for, you know, we don't know what they are, uh, which is kind of frightening. Um, but invest you must. As I've said to people, uh, probably on television or interviews kind of thing, uh, the one way to assure that the value of your retirement plan is zero is to not invest a penny, and zero is guaranteed. So you have to put your money to work. In the extreme circumstance, you know, even cash is not going to help you. It's not going to be any good if the nuclear bombs start going off. It's a frightening, fragile world that we live in. So you can sit and worry about it every day, and uh, you know, in certain respects, if you like to worry, it's a good thing to worry about. But you kind of have to get on with your game, prepare for the future, and hope that those extreme risks don't come home to roost. I want to give you three one-liners that I've heard from investors in the last six months, six years since we started The Motley Fool. Throughout life, you'll hear lines like this, and I'd like your quick reaction to each of them. Stock market is just a big gambling machine, and it's probably rigged too, so I don't invest. In the short term, the stock market is a casino. That's correct. In the long run, it is not a casino. It's a machine for compounding interest and returns, which, as Einstein said, is the greatest miracle in financial history. I tried to convince Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel Prize winner, that the market is more predictable in the long term, and he, was, he wasn't really buying it. Or well, you know, it all, it's, like everything else, it all depends. Uh, the idea that what is totally unpredictable in the short run is more predictable in the long run is a little insane when you think about it. But there are internal dynamics to the market that will prevail as long as the nature of our society prevails. And that is corporations serving consumers, serving corporations, serving government will make money. And if they innovate, if they become more efficient, um, if they have a lot of entrepreneurship on their side, uh, if they're technologically uh, well, well uh, qualified, even leaders, uh, they will do fine. But there's always that big if that hangs over. And any investor that disregards that big if is making a big mistake. I mean, I think about it, but do I crawl into a hole and take my money with me, such as it may be? I'd be more worried about someone digging up the grave and taking it away from me while I'm <laughs> lying down there. Uh, next one is, 
Uh, when it comes to investing, I just give my money to my friend Frank over at Name Your Big Wall Street Bank. Uh, I don't really know what they're doing, but such a friendly person, I f I'm sure that they're taking care of my finances for me. I mean, the, the, a huge majority, I mean, a huge number of people don't want to deal with this subject. It's like dentistry for them. And if they can outsource dentistry, they're going to be very happy to do so. And they turn to their college friend or friend of a friend who happens to work at a big firm and has been trained to be very friendly with them. And they're just going to hand their money and, and say, please don't lose it, Frank, and I trust you. Look at the numbers. How is Frank doing for you? How has he done for his other clients? Why is he trading all the time? Because that's good for him and not good for you. Um, so you should basically, this is not a, this is not a personal matter uh, about finding a friend. As they say in Washington, you know this, Tom. If you want a friend in Washington, get a dog. And you wouldn't do this with your dog. And I don't think you should do it with your friend either. Uh, these are honest people, by and large. They don't really realize that the more they trade, more they have you trade, the less well you do. So activity is essentially the curse of Wall Street. If there's no activity in Wall Street, there is no money in Wall Street. Every day, all those $30 trillion of stock that's trade changes hands, something like that. Um, it, it, one person's buying, one person's selling. It creates no value. It shifts value from A to B or from B to A. And this, the system of Wall Street takes its cut out of the middle. So the gambling, the casino comes up again. You know, the croupiers of Wall Street, like the croupiers of Vegas, as it's called. I believe it's Las Vegas, <laughs> he said. And, uh, you know, they... All the betters that bet red and all the betters that bet black are equal. And, but they don't divide up the returns because there is the croupier. And he's got this rake. And he pulls his share off the table. So love Frank. Buy him a drink every once in a while. Encourage him to tell you the latest jokes, which he would probably do if he was the broker. But... Think about investing as a long-term thing that doesn't involve any trading whatsoever. I wanted to talk a little bit about leadership. Um, you started Vanguard and have been here at this organization for decades. As an investor um, looking out at the world, I observe, and I think there is data to show that companies that are run by their founder in the public markets end up doing better than the market's average on, on, on um, better than market's average return. You have Howard Schultz at Starbucks. You know you have Gates at Microsoft all those years, Buffett at Berkshire. So what do you think, why have you remained with Vanguard all of these years? I mean, you set it up. The system that you created is running and scaling probably, I don't know if it's to greater dimension than you ever expected or not. Of course it is. So um, what is it that's driving you at, at 87? My grandfather went to work every day until he was 94. Uh, and what's causing you to come to work every day? Well, I love helping the shareholders. I really do. I hear from them literally every day to the point where if I haven't gotten a nice shareholder letter by noon, I will say, Emily, do you think you could check the inbox? <laughs> and they keep you going. And our crew here keeps me going. I spend a lot of time with them. I spend an hour with each, just one-on-one -on -one with each Award for Excellence winner. I did probably three anniversaries last week. I go and so celebrate with the 35th anniversary, for example. Uh, happen to be a woman. And uh, so they have all the staff there, so I get to talk to a whole bunch of people and try and ensure that this legacy of the kind of firm that we want to have, based on those Quaker values, <laughs> service, efficiency, economy, patience. Well, not so much patience. Patience there, not for me. And uh, so it's carrying on the mission. With your child, and you know, the, you can run the company or not running as you are, but you're still the father of the firm. You're still the founder of the firm, as you mentioned. And uh, so you keep that spirit alive and try and use what is left of you to um, a lot of what is left of your life might be a little happier formulation um, uh, to help the people you've been helping all these years. And you know, I'm not starving to death. I mean, I haven't built up a nice little amount of capital. Uh, it'd be embarrassment to tell you how what it was. But we have enough to coin the phrase of 
the name of one of my books. Mm -hmm. And uh, we don't need any more things. Uh, and my wife is not a spendthrift at all. We're agonizing about, uh, we have a fairly large charitable budget, and agonizing about where it all goes right now. And uh, so we, we, we kind of choose up, give a lot of money away, and a lot for me. And we love doing that too. So it's been, it's been good in, in every way. And you know, a name and reputation is something you can't quite take with you, but you certainly can't take the do-re-mi with you, Tom. Mm -hmm. <laughs> As my brother-in-law who died before I did, he was a year or so younger, said, if you can't, he made a lot of money in this business by selling their company a couple of times, investment advisory company. He said, if you can't take it with you, I'm not going. <laughs> but he went anyway. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what do you think of succession here? Um, you know, I know that there's, over the next 50 years, maybe there's an effort to demutualize the company or the, the mutual. Um, I think of Albert Barnes, the Barnes Museum in the oh, state yeah. of Pennsylvania, and you wouldn't have thought that his trust could be penetrated, but it was. Um, so how do you set things up and with the greatest chance of, uh, of playing, out, playing out your vision? Well, I think it, it actually speaks for itself. Uh, the shareholders know how well they've been served. They increasingly understand what we mean by a mutual company. They certainly know what we mean by low cost. And if you were going to demutualize, you'd have to pay them something. And it would be complex. It would be contrary to the system. And for all our um, concerns about protecting it, there's never been any more successful company in this business than we have been in terms of total money generated. The only difference is that it's generated for our mutual fund shareholders and not public shareholders or financial conglomerates that own mutual fund management or anything of the like. So the money's going in the right place. It's right there where Adam Smith was. The principal role of the manager is to, share, is to serve the shareholder. We all know that. And it's a great business strategy. Uh, you know, it's, it's frightening to think a billion dollars a day. Think about that mm -hmm. coming in here. We used to have a party every billion dollars at the beginning, mm -hmm. and I'd make a speech. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I could really make. You'd be partying every day. Well, yeah, 240, because I'm counting business days. Mm -hmm. I might as well be clear on this. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, my voice is a little, can't really do that probably every day, <laughs> although I'd give it a try. But I, I think the perpetuation of this system it has been so successful that it would, it would be almost inconceivable, almost inconceivable for anybody to recommend that it be changed, and inconceivable for the shareholders to vote in favor of it. Mm -hmm. You know, we can't just arbitrarily do it. These shareholders are, in fact, our owners. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I, I think it is not, not very likely to happen. And uh, I don't even want to think about turning over in my grave if it does. Uh, although I always used to say, be sure and bury me face up so when I scratch my way out, I'd be going in the right direction. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a couple of crazy ideas and thoughts for you, and I, I want to hear what you think about them. One of them is with all of the last time we talked, you talked about the index fund being a truly disruptive, uh, disruptively innovative creation. I also now see in the technology trends, you know, all of the conversations about artificial intelligence, autonomous cars that drive us wherever we want. Is Vanguard really the organization, and are you the person that created the first robot, robotic expression of investing to a world where it's possible that your 19-year-old uh, grandchild may have all of their money managed for them by technology. They simply enter their basic data, questions that they need to answer, and then a car, a financial car, drives all their financial decisions going forward through algorithms and personalization and automation. Well, you know, I think they put a cloak of complexity over a system of great simplicity. You know, the big robo-advisors, Betterment and Wealthfront, aren't doing all this trading and stuff. They're giving you a decent a asset allocation. And one of their claims is, I've never seen exactly how it works, but how to be very tax efficient. You know, you get a capital gain here, you take a capital loss there. And there's probably something to that, but I can't imagine it's that big and certainly an override. The initial experience of setting an asset allocation. You, I don't think, well, I shouldn't say that. I will say this. Some people really need that. Uh, some people really need hand-holding, and you don't get that in robo. 
everybody needs a little help in asset allocation, but you can figure it out. It's not mm -hmm. very complicated. Mm -hmm. But I mean, will Vanguard 15 years from now, will I be able to type in my information? And even though my life may change, it just navigates with my life based on the questions that I'm answering on the first day of every year. Well, not a lot changes in your life. You know, when you get older, you probably should have more bonds and less stocks. That's, the, that's this age rule that we've talked about. But um, the fine-tuning of this, the idea you need a robo to tell you whether to be 60% in the stocks or 61.3 or 67.8 or 70 is just silly. Mm -hmm. You know, you should probably be 60 or 70 or maybe 60 or 65 or 70. And adjust to that over time. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't have to, I mean, if you think, you know, cutting it by 10 percentage points, let's say, from 70% stocks to 60, to think you can do that as the market reaches a peak and then get back in when the market reaches mm. a interim low. A lot of mistakes were made It's just way. crazy. Well, I guess what I'm really trying to get at is, do you think technology is going to displace? I mean, in a way, Vanguard has, you have three, $3.5 trillion under management and 16,000 employees. Um, any other company that, that, that in financial services that had $3.5 trillion under management would have many more employees than that mm -hmm. because of the systems that they created. Haven't you created an, a Quaker a Quakerish system of so much efficiency that could roll into financial advice and financial planning with tools that make it easier and easier for somebody to do this like they're at an ATM machine rather than sitting in a, in a chair with somebody? We, we do robo here, yeah. and it's by far the largest such, um, call it robo, I guess, in the industry, like 35 or $40 billion, and wealth fronts and betterments are probably maybe $10 billion between them. Uh, and uh, so we have a natural market here for people that need that service or think they need that service. And it's a little more costly because we do have a representative you can call on. You have a name that you can know and talk to. And uh, whether people are using it a lot, I just don't know enough about what's going on there at the moment. But so you can do that here if you want to. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people think they need that. But on the other hand, a couple of years ago, I was doing an informal survey of the Bogleheads. And about 225 of them come in here every fall and listen to me for a painful amount of hours. For them, not for me, I love doing it. And they're a wonderful group of people. And I said, how many of you have advisors? Raise your hand. Mm -hmm. Nobody, not one. Mm -hmm. Why give up that 1%? Mm -hmm. uh, what about indexing the private markets? Is that possible? It would, be, it would be a really logistically challenging thing to do, but to basically find a way to get equity in, by capitalization in private companies and allow people to own that fund? Well, you, there's really no, I mean, I guess you could sort of index that, but I don't know how you get your hands on the private market stocks. Mm -hmm. I mean, Kohlberg, Travis is not going to give it to you. Mm -hmm. And I guess Roberts, I don't think he's around anymore. Um, but, you know, you won't be able to access it. It's private. Mm -hmm. So you can't buy that, you know, your 5% of that particular private placement. Uh, so, and I'm not sure how good all that is anyway. You know, the private thing has gone through in great times. Uh, there's a lot of leverage in that system. Mm -hmm. And right now, the, with interest rates at these levels, where they've been for quite a few years, it makes it very cheap to borrow and leverage a private company. And it looks like rolling off a log. It's so easy when times are good. And when times are bad, like Texas Utilities, they did that $55 billion, I think, uh, privatization. And it failed. Everybody lost their money. There's no easy way. This is a hard business. Uh, so the, the best way to win is to own everything and hang on to it through Warren Buffett's favorite holding period. And Warren Buffett, as you know, puts his money where his mouth is uh, and has his trust for his wife, 90% invested in the S&P 5, Vanguard's S&P 500 index fund. What do you think can be done to get more women to invest around the world? Um, when you look at most uh, investment companies, when you look at the demographics of brokerage accounts, I mean, the first thing you see is that women actually outperform men because for a variety of reasons, but the data seems to suggest that they're trading quite a bit less than that's men exactly on average. Correct. And that's exactly correct. Maybe they don't have as big an ego and believe that they can, they can make a better decision next time? Or no, I think it's a matter of you know, women catching up generally uh, with the idea of investing because the breadwinner has always been, traditionally, been the husband. That's now radically changed. 
And uh, here at Vanguard, I think roughly 50% of our crew members and 50% of the managers and 50% of the next level up are women. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the distinction is, is kind of vanishing. And I think that's good. Mm -hmm. What about children in investing? Did your kids grow up with you giving them investing principles and they put a little savings aside? <laughs> well, what I do is I do it for them. I don't, I don't get into, this, into that. Uh, you know, I put away money to uh, educate them. And then, of course, I was making enough money to educate them later on. So they all have Vanguard Balanced Index Fund. And uh, in a trust, they don't know how much is in it. And um, I've basically am the type of parent uh, that was much more concerned about them observing what I actually did rather than what I said. So and the two boys are in the investment business. And at least one of my daughters is totally knowledgeable about it. She's always the treasurer of a school or whatever she's doing. She's a very active young woman. Well, not so young. She'll be 60 this year. What does that make me? I don't want to get into it. Um, but um, I've never said, now we're going to talk about lessons. Maybe I should have. Sometimes I wonder. But uh, it's more osmosis. Can we close with a story um, maybe that comes to mind of a client, a Vanguard customer that's memorable to you, maybe a story of a great, uh, of a great Vanguard employee that comes to mind, and then uh, a story in your memory of your times here that stands out. So three, three short narratives of a client that's been delighted. I don't know if you've ever come across the concept of conscious capitalism or you've heard that term, but the idea being you really have to be transparent and serve all of the stakeholders of your organization. If, if it gets imbalanced and one is getting a much better advantage than the other, things will wobble and that structure will start to fall. You'll lose the integrity of your organization. So in a consciously capitalistic way, can you tell a story of a, of a, a great client story, a great employee story, and a story from your experience? Well, I've got so many, I don't know where to, where to begin. Let me try the client. Uh, I'd been in correspondence over the years with an airline pilot who'd retired. And I said, look, uh, keep reinvesting your money. You put in a lot of money over a lot of time. Add to it if you can. And uh, don't peak. That's the one rule I want you to remember. Because if you peak, uh, don't ever open a 401k statement until you retire. You better have a cardiologist standing by because you're going to go into a dead faint. You might even have a heart attack. You're going to have so much money. So... Um, he retired and wrote me about 10 years later. And he said, dear Mr. Bogle, I peaked. <laughs> and you were right. <laughs> uh, and thank you. And thank you, sure. Uh, employee story. Well, you probably, uh, you probably saw a good example of that at noon today when a young man that worked for me, Jim Norris, then, I mean, he was young then, worked for me for six years. And he now runs our international operation. And I was always into detail. And I'll tell you this funny story about Jim, which is, I think he even tells. He used to wear this really lousy-looking suit to work. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it was kind of nubby. And the coat was square down here, maybe double-breasted. It was the worst-looking thing I've ever seen. And I don't want to get into that, but I called him into the office late one day. And I said, Jim... We live in a very unfair world. We are judged by how we look, and Jim, we're also judged by what we wear. And it's a very unfair world, I know that, but I think it's very important you dress well when you're here every day, and I want you to get rid of that damn suit. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, well, I, if I'm, I'm having a client meeting that day or any kind of meeting with my fellow crew members, I wouldn't wear that suit. And I said, no, Jim, you don't get it. Never wear that suit. Get rid of the suit. <laughs> I don't know if you, I mean, I'm sure you know. And so now I, he runs our entire international And he was operation. wearing a scarf and he was very stylishly dressed yeah, yeah, in the cafeteria did. today. I don't know so if he, he had a sore throat or what. Uh, St. Joseph's where he we went to college, St. Mm -hmm. Joseph's College here. Mm -hmm. And the St. Joseph's University, I guess it is. Mm -hmm. And those were the president of the university yeah, and right. the financial VP. Right there in the cafeteria. Uh, so in the galley. Yep. Thank you. Yeah. And... Uh, the third one was... A story of, of your own sure, experience. My, well, my favorite story is, um, this was funny, it came up in this video did, that they did of me on Saturday night. And uh, 
It shows these three Bogle boys. I had a twin brother and two of you. And we were cavorting down at Bayhead, New Jersey. And we looked really young, you know, Bermuda shorts and all that kind of thing, sneakers. Um, and, uh, you know, we didn't have those funny things kids wear today with the thong kind of things on their feet. You know, what do you call them? Flip-flops. Flip-flops. Crocs. Pretty, pretty, pretty passe. And uh, so there's a picture of the three of us taken there. And uh, my older brother was 37, and my twin brother and I were 35. And I was always the youngest-looking one of the bunch. And uh, so I looked really, really young in that picture. And it happens that's the exact age I was when Mr. Morgan called me into his office and said, Jack, I want you to take over the company, and I want you to do whatever it takes to solve the problems we're facing. And I immediately thought, boy, you sure picked the right man to do that. <laughs> Very self-confident, mm -hmm. too self-confident maybe, and uh, did what I thought to do. And after a long string of unusual events, including my firing, um, out came Vanguard. Hmm. So that's a kind of memorable at age 35 turn in my life. Hmm. Uh, I could give you another one, which is after I got my heart transplant, you're pretty shaky that first couple of minutes when you come out of the anesthesia. And my doctor said, do you remember the first thing you, my surgeon said, do you remember the first thing you, you said when you saw me? And I said, no, I didn't remember saying anything. He said, you said, get me a pad and paper. <laughs> <laughs> Which really links back to close to your love of Alexander Hamilton. Yep. And his use of the written word. Use of the written word. To tackle all sorts of problems and challenges and, and attempt to teach and persuade yep. and influence. And you've been doing that in this room uh, and at this company for, well, I mean. 65 years. 65 years. It's amazing for someone 55 to be able to do all that when they're 65. <laughs> well, that's your heart. That's the I age of your heart. Ten, I started 10 years before I was born. <laughs> well, and he'll be continuing for uh, uh, another 50 years after you're gone, whenever that happens. Well, I'm not there's, going. There's, there's going to be no different disappearance <laughs> from the Bogle Research Center at Vanguard. I feel confident of that because of the ideals uh, that you are presenting to the company. To But won't they have to change the name? I don't see why they would do that. How about the Alexander Hamilton Jack Bogle Research Center? <laughs> I like it. <laughs> Thanks very much, Jack. Thank Great you, Tom. To see you again. Fun to talk to you.